This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Hakenden is a classic work of Japanese literature. The story of the eight warriors born from Princess Fuse and the dog Yatsufusa has been adapted to manga, anime, and movies, and its tropes continue to pop up in Japanese popular culture today. But there's so much story in Hakenden that Cornell University Press's Eight Dogs, or Hakenden Part 1, an ill-considered jest, a new translation by Glenn Wally, doesn't even get to the eight warriors before it ends. Wally's translation sets the scene for the emergence of the eight dog warriors, translating everything in the book, including the medicine ads the author included to help pay the bills. Glenn Wally is a professor of Japanese literature at the University of Oregon and author of Good Dogs, Edification, Entertainment, and Kyokute Bakken's Nanso Satomi Hakenden, the first monograph-length study of Hakenden, a landmark of pre-modern Japanese fiction. In this interview, Glenn and I talk about what makes Hakenden so special, Glenn's translation choices, and how the book's themes and tropes persist to the present day. So Glenn, thank you so much for joining us on the Asian View Books podcast today. I wanted to maybe start with the context behind Eight Dogs creation, you know, kind of one of these one of these classic Japanese novels. I guess who was the author? Um, what was he like? And kind of he spent a long time writing this book. He did. Uh, so first of all, thank you for having me on. And yeah, the, the author is the the absolutely the place to start. He's a fascinating figure. So his pen name is Kyokute Bakin, and he was a professional author. And this is actually really important about him because he's one of the first professional authors in Japanese history. He's tied with another contemporary to basically be the first person to be able to make a living, support himself and a family purely on the basis of, of his writing, which is kind of a milestone in the development of, of fiction in Japan, of the publishing industry in Japan, of the author as a, as a figure. And he was really proud of this. And he, to do this, he was constantly writing. I'm just staggered by the amount of stuff this guy wrote and published. So Eight Dogs itself is an incredibly long book, but he probably wrote five or six other books of about half that length, and then just dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of other books of a much shorter length. He, I can't even fathom how much the guy wrote. Um, but, it, you know, he had to do this to, to feed himself and his family. And he was also proud to do this because this was, you know, much better than what he had been born into doing. He was he was a samurai. That is, he was born into the samurai ruling class. Uh, 
as a child, but there was really no future for him in that. He dropped out of the samurai class as a young man, as a teenager, and kind of wandered around the city trying his hand at various things before he settled on writing popular fiction as his career of choice. Uh, so that's who he is, and and he's um, he's just a fascinating figure. He, his, he's been the subject of several interesting biographies, a couple even in English, uh, because of because he's this pivotal, really interesting figure for the 19th century. And and yes, more broadly, kind of what's Japan like at this time? Like, I believe this is this is completed kind of before before Perry shows up. So this is kind of pre. This is kind of like the, the 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 very tail end of um, of that era of of Japan. Um, kind, kind of what's the what's the broader context for what Japan is like at this time? Yeah, this is really we can think of this as Japan really on the edge of you know Perry's arrival. So he dies in 1848 and Perry shows up five years later. The, this book gets finished in 1842, so about 10 years before Perry arrives. Um, so it's kind of, we can think of it as traditional Japan and kind of its last stage of development, if you will. So a um, couple of things I always stress when talking about this with people is that it's a, it's a country that's at peace. That is, uh, it's been, you know, the civil wars of the medieval period have been over for a couple of centuries. And even though the country is ruled by a class of professional warriors, and that's the class that the author is born into, none of them have seen action. None of their fathers saw action. None of their grandfathers or great-grandfathers. They have to go back, you know, several generations before anybody in these warrior families had actually been in a battle. And uh, the government never lets them forget that they're at peace. But I think that's also something that the people were probably grateful for, right? I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to live in a country that has not seen war, you know, for, for that long, right? I don't think anybody reading this book today can imagine what that would be like. Um, and in as much as it's a story that's set in the medieval period in a, an age of more or less constant warfare, I think that's something his readers would have appreciated. They're looking back from an age of peace onto an age of warfare, um, where to be a samurai meant something very different than it does in the reader's own day. And then the other uh, aspect of this society that's, I think, key to understanding this book is that it was a, a period of intense urbanization and commercialization. So, uh, you know, so I'm a professor of Japanese literature, and, and one of the things those of us who research this for a living uh, tend to emphasize is is a, a framing of this period as early modernity. So it's not quite the modernization process that we get into in the late 19th century once Perry arrives, but it's also a period when society is starting to take on features that we would kind of recognize as, oh yeah, that kind of feels modern. And one of these is, um, you know, so I mentioned the author Bakin as a professional author. Well, what that means is that there's a publishing industry where books are being printed, mass distributed, sold for money. There's a financial infrastructure that allows authors to get paid for their manuscripts on a regular basis. Not quite a royalty system yet, but he's, he's, you know, there's a system, right? To be able to make money from this means there are systems in place, right? And these books are being distributed more or less throughout the country. Um, you can buy them, you can rent them. Uh, readers can expect that if something is being serialized, that the next volume is actually going to show up at some sort of regular interval. Um, all of this shows a degree of commercialization that starts to feel familiar to those of us who were raised in a, in a modern media environment. Um, you know, so this is a function of urbanization and, you know, this, this booming cash economy. 
So one thing that struck me in kind of reading reading this first part of the translation, and, and I should stress it really is a first part. There are lots of books after this one. Um, but this is only the first part of the story. Uh, and it's all preamble, mm-hmm. but a lot still happens. Um, <laughs> you know, what? What is what makes this part of the story so important among kind of, kind of the wider narrative of, of Eight Dogs? Uh, it really sets up the the narrative framework for it. So after the parts that are in this volume, we meet the eight dog heroes of the title. Um, so we haven't actually met them yet, right? This this book is named after these eight dog warriors, but we don't even meet them. We just lead up to their their birth, essentially. Not even really their birth, but their their pre-incarnation birth, I guess, um, at the end of this this volume. Um, but all of this stuff that goes before their birth is important to understanding how they come to be who they are. So this, you know, these opening 14 chapters, I think it was as kind of a prologue. They introduce us to the Satomi clan. They introduce us to Princess Fuse, who is <clears throat> the central character in the second half of this first part, and uh, the family dog, Yatsufusa. And crucially, Fuse, uh, Princess Fuse's father, who... Uh, Makes some mistakes, an ill-considered jest, um, as as in the subtitle I've given this volume, uh, which leads to a curse. And the curse put on the family is what basically causes Princess Fusain and Yatsfusa to do what they do in the story and ultimately leads to the birth of these eight dog warriors. So... Once we meet them, we already know, we as readers already know that they're kind of under this curse and that they have this, um, you know, he talks a lot, the author talks a lot about karma, this this idea of Buddhist uh, retribution or fate. And they're carrying this load of karma, this this all of this kind of heavy weight of destiny on them, which they're gradually learning how to deal with and learning where that's supposed to lead them. Uh, and so without these first 14 chapters, none of that is there. Um so it's kind of self-contained in that the Princess Fuse arc ends here. Uh, but at the same time, without this, the rest of it just doesn't make sense. So one interesting thing you do um, in this translation is you translate everything. Um, and you mentioned before kind of the the, the growth of a publishing industry. Um, and, you know, you note, in the book that one of the ways um, the author kind of funded this work was to kind of sell ad copy um, in his novel, um, which you translate, uh, you, you, you translate the, these advertisements for, um, for, for, for patent medicines um, inserted in, in, in the copy. Um, I guess my question is kind of like, so, so, so why do that? Why, why translate, I guess, why translate everything and, um, and not kind of, carve out these bits that maybe other translators might feel were not relevant, distracting, etc. Right. Other translators and other publishers. I really want to, you know, uh, take the opportunity to thank my, my editor and my publisher at Cornell University Press for letting me do this. I mean, I think some people might, you know, maybe justifiably feel like it's a little bit too much over the top, maybe even self-indulgent to bring these in. But uh, I decided to translate it all basically because I, as a reader, I'm very entertained by them. You know, once uh, you get into this kind of 19th century mode, um, I find the language in these ads, first and foremost, really entertaining. That To shift from the, I guess, the lofty, epic, 
feeling of the prose narration and then to turn the page and be hit in the face with this patent medicine ad in the back, which the language in that feels very much like a huckster standing, you know, on a soapbox in a marketplace saying, step right up and get, get this elixir, which is going to heal all your ills. I love that. I find that very entertaining. And I uh, kind of was hoping readers would find it entertaining as well. As a, you know, as a researcher, I also wanted to be able to use this in classrooms and remind students that there is this, I guess we might think of it as a tension within the work on the one hand between storytelling, which maybe reaches towards literature, but on the other hand, this very definite commercial context where um, stuff is being sold. The book itself is being sold. The book itself is being used as a medium to sell other things, in this case, patent medicines. Uh, And as the book goes on later and later, I think the ads in the first one are just for the patent medicines um, that are the author's kind of side business. But later on, he actually starts to put in ads for other businesses from other other people. There's a, a very famous, at the time, kind of makeup that starts to get advertised in the pages of this as well. Um, that also tells us something perhaps about what readers' concerns are. Um, you know, what kind of illnesses did people worry about and or you know if they're buying cosmetics what kind of cosmetics were they interested in i I just find this kind of stuff interesting and and i'm I'm jumping ahead in my notes here um Mm. but in one sense you know when i was reading it it actually felt um surprisingly i'm I'm, I'm gonna use the word contemporary in the sense that like it, it feels exactly like um a tv show where you know you kind of end you you end that bit of the book and it's like you know stay tuned for the next for the next volume what we'll talk about what happens to this character um and now a word from our sponsors um and 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 that kind of gets us it's it's i hadn't thought about this until kind of reading reading the book but in some ways kind of the this serialized novel style um I think actually kind of tracks quite closely to how a lot of us consume stories today where, um, you know, comics are like this, uh, TV shows are like this, um, in, I guess in one sense movies now with their never ending franchises are like this, yeah, right. <laughs> um, where it's kind of like you have these stories that just kind of go on and on and on. Um, and people are just kind of very happily along for the ride. I wonder maybe how the serialized novel format, which is not, which in one sense is not something we see today. Like we don't see novels serialized in in this form anymore. Um, yet actually on reading it, um, it tracks more closely to how I think people consume stories, maybe not in writing, but in other forms, um, how people consume stories today. Uh, I, I totally agree. And I'm, I'm glad if that comes across. And uh, I mean, that's another reason I want to include the ads and things in the back to remind people that, you know, what you've just read is one installment of a thing that, you know, turn the page and get to the next chapter, but you have to imagine a year and a half going by before that installment comes out. It feels very much, as you say, like the way we we consume media today, the way we experience storytelling today. Um, and that's another aspect of it that I find fascinating. Um, I talk a lot with my students about popular culture in this era. And, you know, most of us today use the phrase popular culture and we think of contemporary things and there are definite differences. I don't want to say that the things that are happening in the early 19th century in Japan are 100% the same as contemporary popular culture, but the, there's a lot of features that start to 
seem familiar. There are a lot of commonalities. And I think that's important to notice. It helps us to realize maybe that some of the things that we feel are so new today aren't perhaps. Maybe helps us to understand a little bit more about, you know, what are the conditions, for example, that would allow this kind of serialized storytelling, right? I mean, you know, take something like the, you sort of alluded to the the superhero franchises, right? 20 years ago, the most you could expect from Batman was like one or two sequels. Now there's this whole expanded cinematic universe. What makes that possible? It's the same kind of question as one could ask, what makes it possible for Joaquin to tell this story over, you know, 17 installments and, uh, you know, 24 years or whatever. Uh, yeah, feels very so, familiar. So I want to I want to pivot. So <laughs> talking about the the the, the commercial aspects of this. They're kind of going back to to the story, and um, you the book is is there's a lot of kind of morality play elements in in the story. Um, constant references to um, I think Confucian virtues, Buddhist virtues. Um, a lot of characters will stop and say, you know, oh, according to these virtues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yes. um, you know, I, I wonder kind of what our, I wonder if we might get into kind of some of the, I guess, what what these virtues are, how they're, how the story is meant, is trying to convey them. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, you know, why the author decided to kind of insert these these messages as part of the narrative. Uh, that, so that's a really big and complicated issue. And in fact, this is kind of how I got interested in this novel to begin with. Um, I uh, as, as part of my dissertation research, I was looking at precisely this question of the, the role of morality and didacticism uh, in this novel. So I will try to not go on and do a dissertation here for you. But, you know, basically, what are the morals themselves? They're about as simple and straightforward as you could possibly get for the time. He's not trying to advance anything particularly innovative. It's it's basically the common sense of the day. So loyalty filial piety, you know, so that is duty towards your parents, uh, just the really basic standard Confucian virtues, uh, you know, honesty, wisdom, stuff like that. Um, Why he includes them uh, is the more complicated question. Partly, uh, you know, he talks a lot about this in his various prefaces and and other essays. Um, Part of it, I think, is because he feels this is really the way to construct a good story. And I think if we think about, like, didactic Um, storytelling at its most abstract, it's really about making sure the audience is satisfied by how the thing ends. Um, And it, you know, does the good guy win? Does the bad guy lose? Or if the bad guy wins and the good guy loses, do we feel properly outraged by that, right? Storytellers, whether they are overtly trying to give us some sort of moral message or not, are are usually trying to weigh the, the, good and bad of their character's actions and try to make this trying to make the story end in a way that that satisfies us right satisfies either our sense of cosmic justice or a sense of cosmic tragedy whatever it is right um and so he's kind of trying to think just very explicitly about that i think um but also there was an assumption in uh elite intellectual society in this time that fiction was not respectable that fiction was at at best, kind of a waste of time, and at worst, something that could actively corrupt the morals of the people. And it was definitely not something that somebody with a samurai background and education was supposed to uh, indulge in. And people did. But to do that, they kind of had to pretend that they were doing it for other reasons than just being entertained or to just entertain people. So there's another way in which all of this morality is kind of his... 
uh, camouflage to keep the government censors at bay or to keep people from criticizing him and his readers for spending time with this. So I guess what I'm saying is we can sort of take it either as a purely structural device. We can take it as sincere because, I mean, who's going to argue with something like, uh, you know, loyalty? Of course, it's good to be loyal, right? Or we could take it as on, on a slightly detached level as something he needs to do to create a space for himself to tell this kind of story. How seriously did audiences take this? It's always a, a really big question for people who read fiction from this period. So Eight Dogs is a, I mean, it's a, it's now a kind of classic story Japan, you know, and it's been adapted into lots of different forms. I think I kind of looked around and there's, there's anime series based off it. There's, um, so yeah, it's definitely been adapted to other mediums and it continues to hold relevance in Japan today. Um, I guess, why do you think, why has the book remained popular? Um, and, you know, how have some of his characters like Princess Fuse or Yatsufusa, um, how some of his characters kind of transcended maybe the book itself to 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 the present day? Uh, I think the, I guess I would say there's maybe two reasons why it's remained popular. And one is uh, that the story itself is, is just amazingly entertaining. Um, and it's entertaining on a plot level, which means that it's really easy to sort of adapt it or take bits and pieces of it and employ them in another form, either uh, calling it eight dogs or, or working them into a different story. But the, the basic story ideas I, I think are just like really fascinating to anybody. Um, the idea of these eight brothers who have this sort of tragic beginning, these magical items that unite them. They have marks on their bodies, which identify them as brothers to each other. So when they meet each other, they, they sort of recognize each other as, as coming from the same uh, karmic background. Uh, they all have their individual quests. So they're, they're kind of these eight intertwined quests that they're all pursuing, even as they have this shared destiny uh, coming from their uh, origins with Princess Fuse. Um, all of this stuff, there they are they're shapeshifters, there are monsters, there are wizards, there are magical items, magical uh, creatures. It's just got everything in it. Um, battles, large-scale battles, small-scale battles. Uh, it's just got all the swashbuckling stuff you could imagine. There's even pirates in this book. Um, so I think it's just this rich uh, mine of story motifs that have kept it alive um, through the years. Uh, some of the characters... Um, some of the characters themselves, I think, have remained iconic, like Princess Fuse. Um, and then some of the character ideas, I think, have become iconic beyond the story itself. So I'm thinking, yeah, as you mentioned, there are lots of anime, manga, film, TV adaptations that are straight, calling themselves eight dogs, even if they might be changing the story. But I would say that we can see the influence of some of these basic ideas in things that are not even calling themselves adaptations. So the, the classic anime Inuyasha, for example, uh, basically has this uh, hero who is part mystical dog, right? His father was this, this mystical dog and this hero himself is kind of half dog, half human. And he, he and the female main character are going through life trying to to collect not eight different magical beads, but all the different shards of one magical bead. I'm I'm positive Takashi Rumiko was thinking a lot of elements of eight dogs when she's coming up with Inuyasha. Um, I think these ideas, right, of these 
part human, part animal slash monster heroes. That's something that really resonates with people, as well as having a strong female main character, at least in the first part of the book. The rest of the book centers on these eight boys, but these first 14 chapters have this really strong central female character, which I think also helps a lot with it. So we've we've gone this long in the conversation without actually talking about um, much about the narrative in this first part. Um, and you've you've subtitled this part kind of an, an ill-considered jest. And I wonder if you might spend a little bit of time just explaining what that ill-considered jest in the story actually is. So this is a reference, and I should add that this subtitle is something I added. Um, the original doesn't have any subtitles. It's just volume one, volume two, volume three. But I thought it might help readers in English if they had sort of one image to, to attach to each of these volumes as we go forward. Um, so I call it an ill-considered jest because the central moment in this whole first 14 chapters is uh, Satomi Yoshizane, who is the patriarch of the samurai clan. He's Princess Fuse's father. He is at war with his neighbors. He's besieged by enemy armies in his castle. Um, his people are starving. He doesn't know what to do. And so he goes out into his his garden and basically has a soliloquy. Won't somebody help me? I don't know what to do. And the family dog, Yatsufusa, is is there by his side, loyal family dog. And he basically, the, the, the lord, um, Yoshizane, for some reason, takes it into his head to sort of, he's joking around with the dog. And he says, well, if you would bring me the head of the enemy general, I would give you anything. I would give you all the food you want. And the dog kind of looks at him like he uh, like he understands. But then the dog shakes his head. And so the Lord sort of plays along, thinking he's just talking to a normal dog, and says, uh, okay, I would give you fine silk bedding to sleep on. And the dog shakes his head. Oh, I know. You love my daughter. I will give you my daughter's hand in marriage. I don't know if this is the kind of jest one would actually make, but it sort of makes sense in the moment. He's just joking. The dog nods his head, goes off, and comes back with the enemy general's head. The dog has kept his end of the bargain, and basically uh, the samurai lord has to keep his end of the bargain. And in fact, Princess Fuse argues that in order to keep his credibility as a moral lord, leader of men, he has to keep his end of the bargain and marry her to the dog. Uh, so like in the context of the story, everybody suffers because the Lord was speaking, uh, jocularly making this jest to, to somebody who's going to take it seriously. And then he has to, you know, keep his word. Um, uh, so I chose the subtitle because that's the central action, but also I, I'm trying to sort of hint to people that even though this is a very, serious moment and a very serious story if you step back it's wacky it's crazy it's weird and i think the author intended us to realize it's weird it's kind of this fairy tale moment we don't you know it leads to this human animal marriage which happens all the time in fairy tales right uh and we can just we can just enjoy it or laugh about it in fairy tales if it happens in a story that's at least attempting to convince us of its basic reality it becomes really strange and creepy. And I think that's part of what the author's up to here as well. Things that might make sense in a fairy tale world uh, become very strange and creepy and almost absurdly humorous in a more realistic sense. And that itself is, is I think, the author kind of nudging us, you know, how seriously do you want, do you want to take this? Is this whole thing serious? Is this whole thing a joke? Uh, he's almost daring us to, to, to take it either seriously or not. 
Yeah, I feel like this is a this is a story device that I see that that I've seen several times in kind of in in the classic literature that I've read, um, where it's like someone says something and then it happens. It's like, well, guess I got to follow through with it. Uh, <laughs> right. Like right. you know, and like like and this is you don't have to comment on this, but like it reminded me. I, I one of the interviews we did of this podcast was um, an adaptation of the uh, the uh, the uh, Mah- Mahabharata, the classic Indian epic and the story device there is that um so the 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 sons bring um a woman home kind of to, to, to marry one of them and they said look what we've brought and the mother not paid in and says well make sure you share it with everybody uh and it turns out it's the wife and so then the wife has to then marry all seven sons and it's, it seems like it's a common trope where it's like someone says something and right, rather right. than just be like well okay whatever it's like nope because of virtue and tradition, we must follow yes. our word. On this. <laughs> um, I didn't know that was That's great. Did you bring enough for the whole class? Well, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think I'd, I'd like to end by um, by maybe allowing you to kind of give a teaser as to what happens in the next volume. Um, you know what? You know what coming up next on the show, perhaps. Uh, so 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 what happens? What what are some of the the story beats that happen in? Uh, volume two. Well, I'm excited to talk about this because actually, um, the I think it's okay to say this. Cornell University Press has has given the green light for the second volume. I mean, the translation of it I finished a long time ago, but but we are actually moving ahead with publishing it, which is really exciting. So the next volume starts to introduce these dog warriors, and the thing about them is that they so they're all these sort of spiritual brothers, all these spiritual children of Princess Fuse. Uh, but they're not all born together. They're born into eight separate families scattered around the countryside. And as they grow up, they ha- they sort of learn of their identity as they're growing up. Each one of them has one of these magic beads um, that we learn about in these first 14 chapters. They each come by these beads in different ways, and they only gradually meet each other. So they'll meet each other. We'll follow one's adventures for a while. He'll meet somebody else, and they'll realize they'll have this aha moment. Oh, you're another dog warrior. What does that even mean? We don't even know. Somebody finally arrives to explain to them what a dog warrior is. Um, so we, we start this process of meeting them one by one, and they gradually team up in twos and threes. Uh, at the same time that we're meeting them, we're we're meeting them in the context of their own individual troubles. And so the first one we meet, and, and second volume spends a lot of time with this guy, is is a, a kid named Shino. We meet him as a child. We follow him from his birth up into uh, young adulthood. And uh, among other things, he is the, the son of a disgraced former samurai. And Shino himself is kind of lost. And, and then he's orphaned at a fairly young age. But he inherits this quest from his father. His father had been entrusted with his master's magic sword and uh, always meant to return it to him, but couldn't because of his disgrace. So with his dying breath, Shino's father gives him this magic sword and says, find a way to return this to my former master. This is my my dying charge to you. So Shino then inherits this quest, and we follow him on this quest. People are always trying to steal this magic sword from him. In fact, they do. So one of the things, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it, but we basically follow him for a while where we know that the sword he's carrying is not the real thing because it's been stolen, but Shino doesn't know this. Um, it gets it gets complicated. Uh, so that's one of the big arcs we find. And then he meets other ones of these dog warriors, eventually learns uh, who he is and starts to team up with them. Uh, 
And uh, sometimes when they meet, they're at odds with each, with each other. So we see these people fighting who we suspect actually are brothers, but they don't know it yet. Um, this is part of the drama of what's going on. In part two, His Master's Blade is the subtitle we're going with. Ooh, snappy. Um, I can't wait to read it. Uh, <laughs> so with that, thank you for listening to an interview with Glenn Wally, translator of the new translation of Eight Dogs or Hakendun, part one, an ill-considered jest. Um, I do have some final questions for you. We, we, we've kind of talked about what's next for you, which is this, <laughs> which is this volume two of the translation. Um, but is there any other, are there any other things you want to talk about? Any other new projects? And apart from that also, where can people find your work? Uh, so my big project right now is is uh, finishing the translation of this. Um, so, you know, Eight Dogs has kind of been this life life project for me. I, I have a, a scholarly book about it. So anybody who's really interested in some of the larger themes I was t- talking about or the social context of it could could uh, look for that. It's called Good Dogs, Edification and en- Entertainment and, and Eight Dogs. It's from Cornell East Asia series. Uh, but aside from that, this is really the main project. Um, volume two is ready to go. And then I will be starting to, I've already translated it, but I will be starting to, to edit and write an introduction for uh, part three, uh, which will hopefully come not too long after part two. Yeah. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to asiareviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And there are many more author interviews at the New Books Network and newbooksnetwork.com. The ARB Podcast is on all favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to continue to support us writing in, around, and about Asia. Uh, stay tuned for into on who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Glenn, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>